Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 222. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. Thankful that you're tuning into this show. This is the show where we have conversations, authentic, genuine conversations about leadership with all types of thought leaders from authors, executive coaches, celebrities, CEOs, everyday folks like you and I. It doesn't matter who I bring on this show, but the main theme we talk about is our leadership journey. How do we come, become better leaders? Because all of us are going to be called to leadership at some time in our life, whether we know it or not or whether we like it or not. Everybody is going to be called to leadership, as I say on the show all the time, at least one person right now, and there's you have more than one, but at least one person right now is looking to you for influence and guidance. That is a reality, and because of that reality, we should probably understand what it means to be an effective leader. You see, to, for me, leadership isn't about position or title. I think we all think that. It's not necessarily getting people to necessarily just follow you. You see, for me, the ultimate in leadership, the idea of transformational leadership, where we start to actually train other leaders, it's about adding value to other people's lives. That is the key to becoming influential. Add value to somebody else's life. And when you realize that that is what leadership is about, then you realize it's a choice. And if it's a choice, then you can make an impact. You can make a difference. You don't have to wait for anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to wait for anyone. You don't have to sign up for anything. You just make that choice. You opt in and you intentionally, day after day after day, start adding value to somebody else's life. And trust me, it's not as easy as it sounds. But if you dedicate your life to that in one small aspect and realize that every touch point, every interaction with another human being is an opportunity for leadership development and growth, then you're well on your way to setting yourself apart from being mediocre and start living a life of purpose and significance. You see, it's not about being successful. It's about being significant, leading a life of significance. And you do that through dedicating your life to leadership because everything revolves around that. Everything is central to that. Everything rises and falls with it. And so it's in your interest to learn how to become better leaders. That's why I'm passionate about it because I've certainly had my mistakes, my falls all at my doing and I found that the road to recovery, to leading this life of significance, for me anyway, because I was so empty and chasing so many shiny objects and so many you know, things that didn't have any value, it almost led to the dissolution of a marriage. It certainly brought me to a very dark space. And what has brought me out of it, and it's still a journey, trust me, I haven't arrived, and we're going to say that I've arrived, because it's a lifelong journey of Learning how, like I say, to be calm, confident, consistent, and courageous. If you think about those four things, calm, confident, consistent, courageous, you can apply something in your life and improve some area in your life in one of those aspects. And that will help you become a better leader. Again, it's all about leading a life of significance. Gosh, I'm so happy you're tuning in the show. If you find some value in Dose of Leadership, please drop me a line at richard at doseofleadership.com. Take this on your mobile device. Subscribe to this free podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher. Download the podcast app. 
for iTunes. Download the Stitcher app if you had an Android device. Leave a rating and review. It means so much to me. I love to hear from you. Drop me a line at richard@doseofleadership.com and go to my contact page. I promise you I will answer every single one. It may take me a while, but I will get back to you. And I love talking with you. There's so many people I've connected with over the last two weeks, some listeners of the show who find some value. And we just have these great conversations. And again, no selly sell, no, nothing to pitch. I am here to help if you want some executive coaching or professional coaching. But drop me a line. I just love hearing where you're at in your journey. Trust me, I get some great benefit out of hearing from you listeners, and I love hearing from you. So drop me a line. Don't be afraid. Richard at doseofleadership.com, and let me know where you're at on your leadership journey. Okay, today, great guest today. I saw this man speak when I was at the leadership seminar in San Francisco at the end of um, April, I guess it was. And he's Vice Admiral Charles W. Ray. And I don't know if you know much about the rank structure, but Vice Admiral is the... There's only one more level you can go from a rank structure. Basically, it's a three-star. If you're looking uh, in the, the Marine Corps parlays, it's the equivalent of a three-star general. Anyway, Vice Admiral Charles Ray is just a, a great man, a great uh, speaker, a great connoisseur of leadership. Obviously, he has to be. With the duties that he has, he serves as the operational commander for all U.S. Coast Guard missions within half of the world. I mean, think about this. His accountability and responsibility ranges from the Rocky Mountains to the waters off the east coast of Africa. Think about that. He concurrently serves as Commander Defense Force West and provides Coast Guard mission support to the Department of Defense and combatant commanders. So he's been around the Coast Guard since 1981. And again, you can just imagine his real-life leadership challenges that he has. And this is a great episode, too, because you learn a lot about the Coast Guard. If you don't know much about it, I met uh, some Coasties, obviously, when I was in the Marine Corps going through flight school. They went they went through Pensacola Flight School as well, or down at Whiting Field. And uh, so I got to know uh, a few of them. And they got a great mission. There's a lot of things you don't know about the Coast Guard. We talk about this here in this episode. But we also talk about the basics, you know, what makes up his leadership philosophy. And again, I think you'll find how basic and common sense it is. And Charles Ray is just a great individual. You're, lo- you're going to love this conversation. Um, so without further ado, here's Vice Admiral Charles W. Ray, Commander, uh, Pacific Area and Defense Force West for the U.S. Coast Guard. Well, Vice Admiral Ray, what an honor to have you on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Richard. I appreciate it. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. It's rare that I get an active duty uh, officer and particularly one of your ranked on the show to talk about leadership. But give my listeners a sense. I mean, uh, particularly a lot of people probably don't know about the Coast Guard, but give me a sense of exactly numbers and geographic scope of what you're accountable for. I'm the uh, Pacific Area Commander for the Coast Guard. We divide the uh, the country at the Rocky Mountains, and so I have operational responsibility for everything west of there all the way over to the uh, Southeast Asia and beyond. Uh, practically speaking, most of our people are along the continental United States from Kodiak, Alaska, down to uh, Southern California and out to Hawaii and Guam. Uh, so it's about 13,000 Coast Guard women and men that are uh, deployed around the country and, and across the Pacific doing the work of our nation. You know, it's, a, it's surprising to me, and even again, being a prior Marine Corps officer and being a pilot, I didn't realize that the the reach of the Coast Guard went all the way to the east coast of Africa. That was surprising to even me. What what are we doing out there um, out there in the east coast of Africa? Well, the truth is not much not much there. I mean, we occasionally deploy there as uh, part of a Navy task force and 
and other you know operational requirements where Coast Guard particular skills or, or capabilities are needed by the nation. On a regular basis, most of our work is done in the Pacific proper. So we have a you know a significant number of coasties in Guam region, and we've got a handful in Guam, excuse me, in Singapore, and a handful in Japan, and certainly all across the Pacific from. South America up to the Arctic, uh, we are pretty much constant presence there, and, and I think that's a that's a great thing, that, great question to ask, because a lot of people don't know that the Coast Guard is spread. You know, we do our work a lot of it over the horizon, and, and that's where you want us to be, because some of the threats and some of the challenges we want to address those as far from the homeland as possible. You know, it's a, the mission of the Coast Guard is so varied. Educate me a little on that too. I mean. A lot of times the perception probably is, at least for me, is like, okay, well, we got these guys on uh, small ships patrolling the coast, preventing the baddies from coming in or, or any other illegal activity. It's got to be much more than that and more rich than that. Educate me a little bit more on the kind of the breadth and scope of the mission of the Coast Guard. You bet. Well, we, we've got a, a kind of a whole um, basket of mission is, missions, if you will, and and it's really uh, an evolved mission set over 225 years that we've been in service since 1790. And, of course, we're most known for what you alluded to, our search and rescue, and people that live along the coast or people that watch television. That's what we get the most press from. And certainly I believe our men and women are the best in the world at that, whether from small boats or helicopters or, or any combination of other assets. But we have a much greater mission, and, and certainly the – uh, protecting the homeland starts overseas. So we have men and women over in uh, um, countries primarily that we do commercial trade with, and uh, they assist them with port security. We have men and women inspecting ships overseas that do trade with the United States to ensure their safety and uh, their compliance with international standards. And then when you get out on the ocean proper, we have uh, Coast Guard ships and airplanes deployed, as I said earlier, from the Arctic to South America in any range of missions. Uh, one that we, we've gotten a lot of, we spent a lot of effort on, and I think we're having great effect, is in, uh, you know, illicit trafficking, whether that be humans or drugs or, or anything else that's not supposed to be uh, imported uh, illegally. We, we spend a lot of time on that in great effect. One of the things that people don't know, uh, we attack, for instance, drug, the drug challenge, we, we work that problem set down closest to the source countries between South America and Central America, literally thousands of miles from our country. Right. And the Coast Guard intercepts twice as many drugs as all the other police forces in our country put together in a given year. Wow. Because we do it you know, where it's, uh, we get it wholesale, if you will, on yeah. the high seas. Closer to the Certainly source. Certainly, uh, we have an important mission for living marine resources and fisheries and and, you know, fisheries is a multi-billion dollar business for the United States. And whether you're talking about the Bering Sea or the South Pacific or off the east coast of America, uh, there, are, there are millions of jobs associated with this. And so we protect the resources uh, from those who, would, you know, fish for them illegally. And, uh, and we, you know, spend a lot of time and effort on that. Certainly we are responders when it comes to environmental challenges, uh, whether those are man-made, uh, such as, you know, oil spills and things like that, or whether they're, you know, made by nature, and hurricanes and, and other things where people are in harm's way or they need uh, rescuing. And finally, probably spend, a, as I said earlier, a lot of time and effort on illegal immigration. 
while the numbers for maritime illegal immigration are not um, are not as significant as the land border, they are they are almost always more hazardous. Uh, when you think of uh, people leaving Haiti to come to the United States, or people leaving Mexico to come to the United States, or Cuba from the water, it is a dual role of both uh, ensuring the protection of our borders and is also protecting these people from the sea. And then, of course, we're at all time in armed service. The United States Coast Guard is. We are. We have people over in the Persian Gulf right now, and have had for you know over a decade. Uh, we are part of, of any significant uh, naval activity that our nation undertakes. Uh, last year, rim of the Pacific, the huge exercise in Hawaii. The Coast Guard had a had a role in that, and uh, and we've been doing this. We're, we're not a smaller navy. We're just we're a Coast Guard with the specific skills. That we apply to our nation's problems, and we're part of the armed services. That I could go on and on, but that—that's part of it. Oh, that's a, that's great information, and I, you know, it's you know, of course I met first kind of real association I met with the Coast Guard when I went to flight school and uh, at uh, Whiting Field eons ago, twenty-five years ago, and that's when I met my first Coasties. A lot of one thirty. I was a one thirty driver myself, and so got to know quite a few uh, Coast Guard one thirty guys going through flight school. Yeah, no, it's uh, we uh, we take advantage of our our role as a military service using common training like that. We do dive training with uh, the the U.S. Navy. We have we do our ships get their uh, our Coast Guard cutters get their training assessments done from the fleet training groups, and so where possible. But then again, we're affiliated with law enforcement too. We have a great relationship with uh, all the other DHS partners that are law enforcement agencies. So the Coast Guard is pretty unique in that we're the only armed service in the nation that's by law allowed to do law enforcement missions. And we uh, we, we uh, certainly spend a lot of time in that. One thing I forgot to talk about uh, just a minute ago was our, our duties in the Arctic or in the polar regions. Oh, yeah, large. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the Arctic is uh, certainly, there's an ocean there now where there used to be ice. I don't think there's any argument to that. There's argument of what causes it. We don't get in those arguments. We just know there's water where there's ice. And so we are involved in uh, in uh, uh, taking care of the people up there and taking care of the environment, take care of the resources. And likewise, we have a mission that hardly anybody knows about where we have the only heavy icebreaker in our nation. And every year we go down to the South Pole, to Antarctica, to break out, uh, uh, you know, that's a term for opening the sea lane so they can resupply McMurdo Station, which is a critical science station for the nation in the South Pole. Oh, yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that. That's really cool. I'm curious about wh- how much um, the mission changed after 9-11, and then maybe, on to kind of tag on to that, has it kind of um, reverted back to pre-9-11 mission status? I mean, what, what are you seeing, or what did you see 14 years ago, and what are you seeing now? Well, just like everyone on those days, months, and, and even years after that fateful day, uh, we we responded as as we've done over the course of our service to the kind of surge to where the nation needs us. So initially there was a, quite a bit of surges of, uh, of protecting kind of this uh, this barrier at our major ports, and then we started applying some science to it and, and what we call our you know our uh, port and waterways uh, patrols. So that we are, and we're still doing that. Uh, the good thing is we got uh, we were relevant in the protection of our homeland as we still are and protecting critical infrastructure from maritime approaches. And, and, and so those missions, you know, they, they remain. Uh, and so there's definitely an uptick in the demand for Coast Guard services, whether it be 
patrols along the homeland, whether it be work, uh, you know, further out. And, and we've gotten smarter in terms of uh, how we uh, uh, create awareness of who's approaching our nation and, uh, and, and how we figure out, you know, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. So I could go on and on about the changes in the Coast Guard's posture since 9-11, but they're pretty obvious uh, to a degree and some not so obvious. We have increased our role in the nation. And, and we have maintained it. I mean, we're smarter about how we do it. You know, there's a surge to the, to the, to the effort right after 9-11, and now we, there's much more science in how we apply our uh, resources. But it's still an increase in responsibility, and obviously we went through a uh, transition from the Department of Transportation, the Department of Homeland Security, and I think that's been beneficial for our service given the missions of today. And uh, so our service today is markedly different than the service I joined, you know, 34 years ago. And, uh, and rightfully so. I think uh, the Coast Guard brings a lot of value to the mission to protect the homeland and, uh, and, and our unique capability. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that journey 34 years ago. You young kid in Newport, Arkansas, what was the dream? You know, you got out of the Coast Guard Academy. You joined the Academy probably in the late 70s or early 80s. What was the dream? Yeah, I joined then? in 1977. I went to the Academy and graduated in 1981. And my first assignment was aboard a Coast Guard medium endurance cutter home ported in uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. Wow. We did um, law enforcement patrols primarily in the uh, Gulf of Mexico and, and the approaches to the Gulf of Mexico and around to the Straits of Florida. So what was the dream then? Why did you join the, the Academy? Well, like a lot of folks, I mean, when you're 17 years old, I don't know that there's a whole lot of... Uh, analytical thought in it. <laughs> right, right. But it was it was an opportunity. And uh, you know, I come from a small town in Arkansas, which I'm certainly very proud of. But I wanted to see what else was out there. And I, I became, I had some coaching with some coaching from a, uh, a high school teacher, uh, research service academies, and ended up with the Coast Guard Academy. It just seemed to suit me in terms of its size and mission. And not knowing much about it, truthfully, being from a the interior state of Arkansas, but then when I graduated, I get to the Coast Guard, and uh, and I got on that ship, and like a lot of young people, I, I didn't think I was going to extend past five years, but what I found, which which still attracts young men and women, the very best, I'll tell you, today, was the missions that the Coast Guard did then and that we do now, and you know, within my first year on board that ship, I had participated in, uh, we, we saved some people's lives from two different boats and two different hurricanes while we were underway. We arrested uh, more than one uh, uh, smuggler of drugs. We assisted some, you know, illegal, you know, kind of in the apprehension of illegal migrants and uh, and did some fisheries patrols or shrimp patrols, I should say, off the coast of Texas. And, and I just kind of got excited about the missions and, and the operations of the Coast Guard. And then, just like you in the Marine Corps, I saw the opportunity to go to flight school and uh, and I thought, how can you beat that, going right. out in helicopters? We actually had a young man on my ship that was rescued. He had gotten ill, and they sent a helicopter out to get him one night when I was on the ship, and I saw them take him away. And I said, you know, I'd like to do that. <laughs> and so that kind of that's what happened. That's cool. Obviously, as you get in, I, I, I can relate to that. I think we all join the service to be part of something bigger themselves, see what's out there, see what our opportunities um, exist. Talk to me a little bit as you've obviously gone through the ranks in these 34 years, when did you start to realize that there was so much more to leadership than position and rank? And just kind of talk to me a little bit about your 
journey into leadership and understanding the intentionality behind leadership? You bet. Uh, I think it's a journey. I think you said that word, and that's what I tell young people that I talk to about. It's a, uh, it, you grow as a leader as you progress in the military, and I would assume in other organizations, although I'm not intimately familiar with them. But what was good for me as a young lieutenant junior grade on the ship is not good for me as a vice admiral 34 years later. So leadership is a journey. But what I found, the, the basic elements remain the same, though. There's a couple of basic elements, and, and it, it, this became impressed upon me early. One, it's, there's, a, there's a great degree of uh, responsibility and uh, um, that comes with having other people's lives in your hands. And, uh, and I don't mean to sound too dramatic, but, you know, that's, that's the truth in, in some cases. Right. And so when you ask young people to do things that are dangerous and, that are, and, and they're away from their families and, and all the other hardship that goes with doing some of the things we do, it's a tremendous responsibility. So that was impressed on me early on that the responsibility was mine to make sure they were ready and to make sure I looked out for them. And if we were going to put them in harm's way, that we give them every opportunity to succeed in that. And so uh, that's, uh, I don't know, that's, that's just something that resonated with me and then you know, and then the journey starts from there. And, and the, the thing that I say, so responsibility to the people you're leading. And learning pretty quickly, in, in my case anyway, and this was impressed upon me by senior petty officers and chief petty officers in the Coast Guard. These are the, the enlisted folks who are leaders who've been around. Is that, you know, it's really, it's not about me as a leader. And, and once you get over that and mm-hmm. get that, it's about the young men and women who are doing the work. Uh, then you just start off, I think that just gives you a leg up and an opportunity. There's certainly plenty of ways to, to fall short, and some really great people have done that. But it, if you remember that, that, it's not about you and it's about the people that are doing the work, and that uh, uh, that old axiom that, you know, rank has its privileges, the biggest bunch of baloney, rank has its responsibilities. Right. So that's, that's, that's how you start this journey. What are some of the, you know, a lot of times when I look back at my military career, so many times, and most of my leadership experiences were positive, but man, there are so many examples that really stick out. It's almost like you learn more from the bad examples that you've seen or the kind of the leadership failures. Are there any that kind of stick out in your mind that really kind of like, wow, I, I'm not ever going to do that, or this, I, this is not the type of leader I want to be? Did, did, you, did you have that same type of experience? Yeah, I, in fact, uh, one really sticks out in my mind. I was a, I don't know, three, four years in the service. And, you know, back in the 70s, it was a different time. In the early 80s, it was a different time, and there were different models out there. And uh, and there was much more, um, uh, uh, you know, difference between the rank structures and what was allowed and not allowed. Anyway, the point was that I found, and, and it seems almost ridiculous to even say this now, but this whole praise in in public and, and re, you know, rebuke in private, that, that was not well known. And I saw cases where people would make it a point to just see how loud and, uh, and they could be perfectly right. The person they were chastising or criticizing or correcting, you know, people had the stereotype from watching television or movies that that's what military people do. And, and to a degree, there was some of that going on, and I did it, uh, you know, a, a couple of times, I know of. And, and I remember this guy who became a dear friend of mine. He was a chief petty officer, and, uh, and he took me under his wing. I did something like that. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but it was just a bad example. Right. He took me under his wing, and he said, you know, uh, sir, there was a lot of ways to handle that. Uh, that guy was wrong. He shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. And, uh, but 
that's not how I would have handled it. And so he took me under his wing and basically corrected me in a very respectful way, and that was a foundational change in how I approach things. It, it seems rather simple, but that was one of the things. No, but, you know, I, that's a great point, and I, I've talked about this a lot, and, I, and it's something that I've kind of missed or I rarely see in the civilian sector, and I wish more people would uh, take advantage of, but maybe it's because we don't have, in the civilian sector, you don't have the um, – uh, the command structure or the hierarchical structure as as um, obvious as it is in, in the military. But isn't that such a great, unique gift? I mean, I, I, I think you understand that and you know that from even though you've never been in the civilian sector. But that kind of relationship of having a senior NCO, you know, that responsibility that they have, or at least that opportunity that they have to um, mold young officers is so precious to me. And I think that example, it, it can't be undervalued what you just said. That is so powerful in shaping young officers, I think. It happens. Almost everybody that I've known that, have, that has cared about leadership and have become decent leaders or even great leaders in the military has had and can look back on a senior staff NCO that kind of, as you put it, took him under your wing. I think that is absolutely precious, to be quite honest. Yeah, and it's been a blessing for me, and I've had more than one. When you stick around a long time, you you kind of, uh, if you listen and if you will be open to uh, criticism, be approachable, be uh, you know respectful criticism, if you will be open and listen and pay attention when people are trying to help you, you'd be surprised how many people will help you. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I remember talking to you, I seen, seen you speak, you talked a lot about um, humility has been a huge part of your leadership journey. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of humility and how you stay humble, even as you go up the ranks. Well, uh, there's a couple of ways that I do it, and I've talked to a lot of young people about this. One is you've got to have somebody who's not in your rank structure or somebody who, who knew you back when and who knew you before you had whatever specific rank you have, and it keeps you grounded. I've got a great family uh, back in Arkansas, and I've got a great wife and, uh, you know, and other associates, and they keep me grounded. When I, when I get to thinking, uh, uh, and I try not to, but occasionally we're all human, when I get to thinking, you know, look at what I've done, look at it's all about me, they will certainly draw me up short, and I go to them regularly because I know I need that every now and then. Mm-hmm. I think we all do. And so having someone who... who who is not part of your your you know chain of command and who's not not beholden to you, but who cares about you enough to tell you the truth? That that's really important. I think uh, so. Spending time with folks uh, like that, and then I think you just have to make time and uh, kind of be self-reflective. And when things are not smooth, when things are not going the way they should, when things are not um, uh, people are not excelling. You need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, man, you know, maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe I'm the one that needs to adjust on this. And uh, if you do that, have somebody that, that will keep you honest and uh, and then realize that, you know, you've you got to reflect every now and then and make sure that you're on the right track. I think that helps. Yeah, the contemplation piece and the intention. Yeah, the intentionality kind of coupled with evaluated experience or contemplation. Um, that's the intentionality of leadership that I think a lot of people don't realize that it is takes a great deal of um, almost habit-forming discipline, right? Intentionality. Um, what do you – how about that piece of it? Do you – when you wake up in the morning, do you have any rituals or ideas? Do you reflect? Are you spiritual? What do you do to kind of keep you, okay, this is what I'm doing today. Keep keep it keep it the big picture. Do you have any techniques? Yeah, I, I am a spiritual person, and, and so, I, you know, I spend some time every morning in prayer. 
But uh, even if I didn't do that, another kind of habit that I have, and I think I might have talked about uh, when we first met, uh, when I first made Flag Officer, uh, and I had similar things to this, but it was really imprinted on me, you know, seven or eight years ago, when our vice commandant said, look, you know, congratulations on you group of people making Flag Officer, but but you could, you know, you could get hit by a bus today and there'd be another 50 people lined up to take your place. So you have the responsibility to make the most of every single day you have in this. So literally, I look myself in the mirror every morning uh, and say, you know, what, what am I going to make today to earn this uh, authority, responsibility, privilege that I have to, uh, to help uh, direct what I think is one of the greatest organizations in America? And so you kind of have to just ask yourself, it sounds like it's almost kind of corny, but if you think that way, if you look that way, then maybe it'll help you align and say, well, maybe that what I was thinking of doing is not quite as important as these other things. And it helps you prioritize. Yeah, I think that's a key. I love that you said that the prior the priority piece, um, and I think having that introspection or contemplation in a habitual form certainly can help, yeah, keep you kind of focused on what is important, the priority at the moment, yeah. What about, I found aviation, um, or at least going through the aviation piece of it, has helped me tremendously to learn how to compartmentalize in stressful situations. Have you had that same experience? Yeah, I agree. I mean, compartmentalization is important, and it's important the higher you get in leadership, certainly in the military, and um, I'm assuming in other fields. But for us, what aviation has taught me is, you know, you're always going to have more to do than, uh, than you can do. And so you have to prioritize what's, uh, you know, what I always tell my guys here when I'm dealing with them, I say, you know, let's, let's get after the alligator that's closest to the boat. Mm-hmm, right. so we, there's other alligators out there thinking about, talking about, and dealing with, but today, what's the alligator closest to the boat? Let's focus on that. And sometimes there's not one right in the boat, and so you have the opportunity to uh, kind of got across, and, and certainly you want to look beyond the horizon on a regular basis. Compartmentalization is important, and it also, I think it reduces stress, too, because if you look at the big picture, if you look an overwhelming situation, uh, an operational environment where you've got a, a lot of potential bad things that could happen, you compartmentalize, you can focus on one thing at a time, and, and it keeps you from maybe getting into that, you know, we've seen examples of, and we're all we're all susceptible to it. We just kind of get all shut down. Yeah. And is that a way, I mean, I think it's important to, to realize too, that you will be afraid in those situations. I think a lot of times we think we equate courage without not being afraid, but the honesty part of it is you're going to be afraid regardless of the situation, right? But the training and the compartmentalization kind of allows you to kind of muster up that courage to work through it. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree with you. The, uh, there's, there's all types of courage, of course. There's, the, uh, there's kind of, uh, courage, you know, physical courage, and, and uh, much has been written, and we've certainly got many examples of that in our in our nation these days with our men and women in, in conflict. And then and there's, there's there's moral courage that to do the right thing, it's not very much fun, and uh, and, it, and it's, it's really hard. And, and I think that's a part of leadership that folks need to focus on is that, that uh, kind of moral courage piece, but all this requires you to to. It's easy to kind of blend from one thing to the next and kind of look past things and not realize things when they are really important, and that you have to be decisive and you have to take a stand and you have to take action. Uh, it, sometimes it's easy to kind of gloss over because it's hard and you just move on to the next thing. And I think the the leadership uh, 
that's most effective. You realize, first of all, you realize when these things are a threat to your organization or a threat to the culture or, or any other thing, you take action. Yeah, great stuff. You know, so many things we can talk about, but I'm always curious, too, about who um, people's heroes are or who you really looked up to. If you had an opportunity to invite five people to the ultimate dinner party where you could just have this outstanding conversation, alive or dead, who would those five people be? Oh, you were broken up a little bit, Richard. I, I, if I think I understood you, it was, you know, who would the five people be uh, that I would have conversations with? Yeah, like your heroes. Like if you could have the ultimate night of conversation with these people that you just totally admired or would love to get to know better or even, you know, alive or dead, who would those five people be? Well, I think obviously, uh, you, I told you I was a person of faith. The first one, of course, would be Jesus. Yeah. I would love to have a conversation with him one-on-one other than, you know, through prayer. Uh, but then moving more to the, you know, kind of uh, uh, other folks that I've admired. One, uh, Abraham Lincoln is, is one of my heroes for just a, a number of reasons, for what he did for our nation and for how he developed himself. And so that would that would be one. I think... Uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I'm a big fan of him, and I, I just I think some of some of what he did, I, you know, I wasn't a fan of, but what he did for our nation in terms of being a leader, in terms of being aggressive, and uh, and, and and yet still being uh, understanding that there were some things that were important that other people maybe didn't think were important. Uh, that's that's certainly a guy, uh, and you know, uh, a guy that I wish I could still talk to because he was the marked leader in my life was my father. My dad was a Marine Corps. Uh, officer and, and uh, you know, a law enforcement officer after that, and uh, I just, uh, he died a couple of years ago, and so if I could, there's, I thought many times, man, I wish I could talk to Dad about mm, that. Yeah. But, uh, that's a very, you know, figure that I would love to talk to. Uh, let me think for a minute. I think, um, uh, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm kind of biased towards military figures. Uh, you know, I think Eisenhower, and yeah. what he contemplated there on D-Day. And, yeah. As we look through that and the chances for failure there, I think are uh, certainly uh, something that uh, all of us can learn from because there was so much risk, and we all just look at what happened and uh, kind of take it as a foregone conclusion. It certainly wasn't. Right. I don't know if I got five or not, but that's, that's just what off the top of my head. Yeah, well, those are great. Those are four great ones, and I always love it when someone brings up their father, their mother, their grandfather, grandmother, something close. It always reminds me of how influential we are even just existing, the people that we're closest to, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, the fact that you ranked your father up there with, with Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, and Eisenhower says a lot about how influential we are as parents without even trying, right? So think about what we could do if we actually tried. And so I, I love I that you and – and most people do, by the way, which is it says a lot about parents and how influential we are as leaders. That's a fact. Yeah, you. Uh, I think for the first, well, until I lost you two years ago, uh, I, and my dad was not one to to uh, you know push his opinion. He didn't go around freely offering advice. But if I asked for it, I always got the straight scoop, and uh, and I just learned so much from him. So thanks for that. Oh, great question. Great answer to that question. Well, guys, sir, it's, you know, we're coming up at the end of our time, and uh, how can people learn more about the Coast Guard? How can people, I know they're probably hard for you to reach out to you directly, but how would you want people to get in touch with you or the Coast Guard, or, or where can people find more about you and the Coast Guard? Well, we've got a pretty good website that's, you know, publicly facing, and, uh, and uh, you know, and certainly you just Google the, you know, U.S. Coast Guard and get to our, you know, normal Coast Guard website. I don't remember the WWW what, but... Uh, 
But anyway, yeah, Google it, and that's it. We've got, I think, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of programs out there, you know, the Coast Guard Alaska and things like that, that, uh, that have been on and they're still out there that show our young men and women in action. That's a great way to learn about the Coast Guard. And, but I, that's the two I would do, the website and that. And if you look through the Coast Guard to get to Pacific area, uh, you can find a way to contact, you know, if somebody's got a particular question. Right on. Sir, what an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. And uh, stay on the line for a second. But my gosh, thanks for coming on Dose of Leadership. Hey, can I have one more input here, Richard? we got like 30 seconds. You bet. Go ahead. Yeah, one thing that we didn't talk about that I always like to talk about because it's so important is command climate. And we could talk about it all day, but what I would reiterate, just be very specific, is people are interested about leadership. It's not about you, and you do not have to have all the answers. What you've got to be, though, is approachable. You've got to have a climate where people will come and tell you what needs to be done, and, and you get their input. And uh, if you don't have enough climate where you're approachable, as you get to the more complex problems that exceed one person's capacity, you're going to have troubles. Amen. Well said. And again, it just that's a great lesson I learned, too, from flying planes, that you got to have an open cockpit where there's no egos in the cockpit. It's the same thing. you got to have people be willing to tell you you're about to crash into the mountain or hit that iceberg, right? So... You got yeah. All right, sir. Well said. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.